When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You are listening to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 38. Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Maps. Download the Hunt app today from the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store. Know where you stand with Onyx Maps and by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, where adventure awaits you. Go to gumleafusa.com, use the promo code PU2018, that's promo code PU2018, for free shipping from gumleafusa.com. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is John Myers. John is a listener. John is a new upland hunter. He appreciates what we're doing on the podcast and that Project Upland in general. He sent us some great feedback, and he wants to see the podcast get better and better. So for that, we thank you, John. I appreciate it. And this is to tell you, the listener, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. Make a meaningful contribution to the podcast by doing any or all of these things. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Send us some feedback and or guest suggestions. We would love to hear from you. Use the contact form at the website, projectupland.com, or send me an email directly, nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, let's do it. We are a week closer to bird season. I can't believe it. I got out yesterday on some wild birds, sharp-tailed grouse. First time, actually, chasing sharp-tailed grouse with my dog on the ground. Made a couple of finds, pointed a nice big covey of birds. It was very exciting, needless to say. My excitement level has been taken up a notch. I cannot wait to head west for my first western wing shooting trip. Montana and North Dakota in September. Coming up right around the corner. And I know and hope that all of you listeners have your own trips planned and you're getting as excited as I am. And we're going to help you do that this week on the Project Upland podcast as we hope to do every week. We've got a great interview today with John Zeman. John is an upland bird hunter dog trainer, YouTube video poster. He does a lot of different things. He's in Minnesota. He's got 
awesome string of German short hairs that are much on display on some of his YouTube videos. We'll post some links to where you can find that stuff in the show notes. John and I had a very cool conversation about where he got to start up and hunting, some of his philosophies on dogs and training, some of his horseback hunts to Montana. Very cool stuff, unique unique kinds of hunting that, that John does and shares with a lot of people via his YouTube videos, which is where I discovered him and decided that I want to get in touch with him and find out a little bit more about John, his dogs, and his upland hunting adventures. My apologies, the audio quality got away from me a little bit at times on this one. It's a little quiet. I think we smoothed it out enough, but I did notice that when I was editing the podcast, so if you notice that, we are aware of it. Ultimately, I think it turned out all right. And I think you will enjoy this week's episode of the podcast. So without any further ado, let's welcome to the show, John Zeman. All right, here we go, John. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. Nick, it's great to be here. I Thanks appreciate you. Me. I appreciate you taking the time, John. It's, it's my pleasure, as as with all of my guests. Thank you for joining us. And uh, was your voicemail message uh, box, email, all that stuff? Did it did it blow up this weekend after this week after the Star Tribune article, or, or are you just yeah. still regular old John? <laughs> yeah, I got to say, uh, you know, I've uh, gotten a few a bit more attention than I'm used to. Um, yeah, that article was. Was quite the thing. Uh, Tori is, is just a heck of a writer and a really nice guy. That yeah, was really nice. And, uh, no, my uh, you know, of course, I'm on the social media with uh, Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I've uh, kind of gotten a few more friend requests and such like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a Tori did do a he did a nice job. It was a it was a neat little article and. And as I as I kind of mentioned to you, I've been I've been following you for a little while, watching your YouTube videos, which we will talk about a little bit later. And and I kind of mentioned I was meaning to reach out to you because I watched enough of your videos where I thought, geez, you know, this guy he, he'd be a be a neat guy to talk to. And then I we may have been friends on Facebook, I don't recall, but you know how you spend enough time in the upland bird hunting circles and you you come across somebody's name and you. That's one one of the nice things about social media is it does make it easy to reach out to somebody that you think you might have something in common with and and sure enough you had uh, you had listened to the podcast and and uh, you were happy to happy to join me for an episode. Oh yeah, no, and I've uh, followed you and your podcast and it uh, sure seems like we got a few things in common. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are are you are you a regular podcast listener, John? Do you listen to other podcasts, or was up? Yeah, on- yeah, I do. I've got a almost an hour commute each way. Uh, you know, every morning, every evening, and uh, tend to pass the time and pass the traffic. Uh, it tends to it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of good uh, material out there that uh, I really enjoy listening to. Yeah, there really is. That's that's one of the things that I have always really enjoyed about podcasts. It's one of the reasons I was interested in starting one. And and uh, there's, like you said, there's a ton out there. It's very cool. Well, let's do this, John. Why don't you Why don't you put us on the map, as I like to do with all of our listeners? Where Where are we speaking to you from? Where do you call home base? Uh, I'm just outside of Zimmerman, Minnesota, which is uh, about 40 miles outside of the Twin Cities, northwest of the Twin Cities. Been here for a little over 33 years now. That's where I call home. Awesome. So you're not too not too far south of me, same state. Where uh, where were you at? Where were you before that? What led you to Zimmerman? I uh, grew up, uh, went to school uh, in Plymouth, suburb of Minneapolis. Shortly out of high school, I uh, went to work in construction and was making some good money, just enough to put a down payment on a house. And the first thing I wanted to do was get out of town. So and uh, bought a small hobby farm and a little farmhouse up here, and, and uh, that's where I've been ever since. And got married and raised uh, five kids up here, and pretty much uh, had it made. Uh, you know, started raising dogs. I've always had dogs and horses, and that's uh, kind of been my life, it seems. I'm 54 years old, and yeah, I still enjoy it as much as I did when I started. 
Well, you definitely you definitely stay active, John, and that's that's evident. And and I I would imagine that's that's why you got so many so many adventures that you've been on, and more than likely, and hopefully many more ahead of you, which is very cool. So it's it is August, and you're in Minnesota, so we're coming up on bird season. You got to be getting pretty excited. Are you are the dogs tuned up? Oh, yeah. Are you ready to roll? What do you think? Yeah, it, uh, it's going to sneak up on us in a hurry here, and uh, no, I I've try to keep my dogs in shape and prepared and doing something with them pretty much year round and uh, yeah really looking forward to it we're going to be making our uh, annual trip out uh, west uh, start with first of september and, and then move on to Ralston in minnesota and yeah it, uh, it's really looking forward every year you know you wait for those cool dry uh weather to hit and, and you can just feel it in the air it's it's here the dogs tend to tell you the same thing. They feel it coming. Yeah, we've been we've been getting them prepared. It's been a lot of fun. I think you're I think you're right about that. It's definitely I can I can feel it when I when I let the dog out in the morning and in the evenings it's starting to cool off a little bit quicker. And usually every time I let the dog out for the rest of the night, it's getting to that time of year where it feels like man, I wish I was sitting next to a campfire with a with a beer in my hand after a long oh, day's yeah. of hunt, and you can tell that it's coming. Oh yeah, yeah. The dogs. Uh, we try to keep them, keep them tired. Um, these short hairs that I'm running, uh, they always uh, tend to behave a lot better when they're when they're tired, and it's been <laughs> tougher and tougher to tougher and tougher to keep them tired when it's uh, especially when the cool weather hits. And uh, it just seems to be there's no bottom to them. You know. That is absolutely the truth. Well, we're going to talk about those short hairs. We're going to talk about your trips out west. We're going to talk about a bunch of that stuff today, John. But first, we've got to rewind. And you talked a little bit about kind of where you grew up and how you wound up where you are. But let's let's talk about the Upland story. Where did it start for you? Was it and who got you into it? Was it a family thing? Was it friends? How did you get into this mess of uh, Upland hunting that you found yourself in? Well. Yeah, I would say I, I grew up in a hunting family. Of course, uh, as a kid growing up, I had BB guns, and I was out, uh, you know, hunting whatever. Moved, you know, shot my first pheasant when I was, in, well, probably ten years old. My dad put a old JC Higgins in my hand, a bolt action twenty gauge. So, you know, the time that if you open the bolt, the bolt would fall out on the ground. And, <laughs> basically a single shot, but uh, I still remember the day that um, shot my first pheasant, and uh, it pretty much um, lit the fire. Then, uh, yeah, that's really something that I've always enjoyed. And uh, as I grew up, um, got my we we didn't have dogs until I got my first short hair when I was 15 years old. Just bought her out of the paper and and uh, got the puppy home and I think that that dog was was running the field every day of her life uh, pretty much and uh, yeah, it was you know, just growing a fascination with uh, especially with the pointing breeds and uh, yeah um, I quickly developed into the, the one that led the rest of the family it seems like in the up on hunting uh, my, my brothers um, didn't um, probably get as hooked as I did. They had other other um, hobbies or sure. passions of golfing and whatnot, but um, when it came to fun, it was always, John, where are we going this weekend? And um, I always had the dogs and, and you know, we were wolf hunting or pheasant hunting or duck hunting. No, it's just, um, it's been a continuous thing, like I said, that's pretty good though. First bird dog at 15 years old, and it was a short hair right from the beginning too. That's yeah. pretty neat. What? Yeah. How much? How much arm twisting and begging your parents did it take to get that dog, or was it pretty easy? Um, I don't recall uh, much arm twisting. They, I think, had a lot of confidence. I'd had other, I'd had horses and everything since I was young, and um, you know, I was one of those kids that just uh, took responsibility for doing chores and whatnot. Yeah, that, that first that first dog of mine um, really you know taught me a lot of stuff, gave me a, a real love for it. And um, it happened to be when I had bought the dog, 
Um, there wasn't really any noteworthy bloodlines behind it, but um, the uh, the sire of that dog a few years later uh, began to, to really win some noteworthy national championships, and uh, the owner of that sire kind of uh, was my mentor, took me under his wing, his name was Gary Gearing, and uh, introduced me to field trialing, um, and just showed me a lot of things of what, you know, a dog, what can be accomplished with a dog, and uh, I, I owe it to him, I think, a lot of, you know, my love for training dogs and, and working working dogs, uh, to just him introducing me to, you know, that whole world of running dogs. Those mentors, they can play a they can play a critical role in the development and fueling that fire, like you said. Oh yeah, yeah. It takes some somebody, especially in in the competition world, you know, competing in field trials and such. It's a, it's a hard thing to break into it all on your own. And I and I really didn't um, get all that serious. I'm still you know, I compete more as as an amateur and. Uh, and uh, I don't do a whole lot of traveling. There's certainly others that um, are, are more sold out to it than I ever was. But um, it's something I really enjoy. It gives me something to do you know, year-round with uh, the dogs. But uh, it was always, you know, I hunt first and, and compete second. Good deal, John. Well, let's fast forward a little bit now. We talked about the background in the beginning. Something tells me that way back when, when you shot the your first pheasant with a bolt-action J.C. Higgins 20-gauge, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and venture to guess that you did not have a GoPro strapped on your head. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a while ago. Um, and, uh, but I can still picture it. I can still see it with uh as if it, you know, can replay outright in front of me. Yeah, the whole GoPro thing is something a few years back, but then I, my, my kids bought it for me for Christmas. I started using it, and it was just a lot of fun to, to you know, relive, you know, some, some moments, uh, you know, great dog work or a nice shot or a beautiful country. And yeah, we've had some fun with it. It's taken old fart a while to kind of learn the, um, <laughs> the technology of you know video editing and, and whatnot and uploading stuff to YouTube, but uh, yeah, I, I've done it a number of times now. And I'm about ready to upgrade now to a different camera. Some of that shaky video, I'm really kind of getting tired of it. And there's a lot better uh, equipment out there for, for doing that same thing. So. Yeah, well, John, I gotta commend you because I am a I'm a millennial, so at least I, I'm I'm certainly haven't uh, I haven't dove into the GoPro world per se yet, but I can at least say I'm definitely familiar with technology and I grew up with it. And I gotta say, you do a bang up job. You do a really nice job with your videos for the tools that we've had over the past, you know, five to ten years, and I think it's. That's it's kind of how I we were talking before we started recording that that's really how I discovered you I was really trying to I was struggling through this off season a bit late probably well early this year in February and I would I would uh, go downstairs and fire up YouTube and and there's becoming more and more good bird hunting content on YouTube and that's really the place that you kind of have to go to find it because there's there's not much else out there as far as you know like the main outdoor TV networks and that sort of thing but but if you if you do a little digging you can find some good stuff on YouTube and you have done a good job with it now I want to I'll ask you a little bit about we won't go too far into this but but technology what are you looking at as far as upgrades because I've been I did a little bit of looking into the gimbals and a lot of the new stuff that can potentially you know, smooth out some of this right. GoPro footage. Like, what do you have? What are you looking at? Yeah, what, I, what I'm looking at right now, from what I can tell, some of the newer cameras have built into the camera better stabilization. Yeah. Like the, the GoPro, you know, 6 Black. Um, really, um, I was going that same route, too, as far as adding the gimbal mount. But I knew that, it, you know, that's just going to get that much more bulkier to be able to carry that over the camera on my head. Yep. Um, and I think there's, there's guys out there that have worn it on their shoulder with a gimbal, too. But 
cameras, uh, they've got a, be- a better stabilization. I'm not sure how it all works, but um, well, it takes pretty darn good quality uh, video that way, and I think that's the route I'm going to go without trying to, to add anything more to it with a gimbal. Uh, what I've been using is the, the just the, the Hero 3, which is, um, you know, that's still, I think there's a lot better technology out there. Yeah, like anything else, they they cycle through it pretty fast. But uh, the gold, the GoPro stuff, it does. I think I've got a Hero Four sitting on my desk here. I mean, it does. It holds up, and they are they are good cameras, that's for sure. But they they do uh, they do improve. Now, let's just talk a little bit about sort of the the whole idea of GoPro because you know as well as well as I do that. The discussion comes up often, you know, especially when you talk about something like grouse hunting. That's it's so timeless. A lot of people they don't want anything to do with with video cameras, and and they don't they don't want to mess with it. And that's you know neither you or I are here to tell anybody that you know not to each their own. But from your standpoint, you clearly get value out of it. And like you mentioned, recording some of those memories and beautiful scenery, and, and that is evident on your videos. And you have, you also have some really cool, I think, very special highlight videos. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna again go out on a limb and say that you have to be the only person to ever capture, or at least capture and publish, shooting, shooting a double on rough grouse. Yeah, that was a, that was pretty special. That could, could be. I'm sure there's somebody else that. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that that could be, but I know that I've never seen it. And Mm -hmm. before I before I called you tonight, I searched it just to just to just to see if there was anything else out there, and I I was not able to find anything. But that is that is one video that I'll throw a link to all this stuff in the show notes so people can check it out. But but that was there was actually well, why don't you tell us a story because it actually was. You know, you captured it on video, but it was pretty neat. Yeah, this was a couple of years ago, and I had gone up to a favorite grouse hunting spot, one that I go pretty deep back into a, uh, a state area, and um, it was a, it was really a, a typical beautiful October morning. We had gotten onto it was a it was a spot that I had never hunted before. I actually crossed over a beaver dam to get onto an island. This island was probably about, I would say, 40 acres, maybe maybe 50 acres big, and um, just decided, well, um, I'm sure nobody's been across this, because I was probably three and a half, four miles in from the road. This is an area where you can only walk in. And on the primitive, it was around, of course, by swamp, and you know, we were finding grass at a pretty good rate, just the first couple hundred yards on there when we've gotten up to a point of, of this island sort of gone and deep one dog stand up uh, up ahead up in the up in the end and my um, younger female came in for a bag walking up uh, it, was, it wasn't a true double because the, if you look on the video the, the second bird that I did shoot uh, didn't flush until I shot the first bird <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it, there was probably three or four birds that got out of there, and um, I just happened to connect on, on both of them. Uh, the dogs did a beautiful job and stood, called a sermon for the retrieve. Uh, the most special part of that was uh, here they came in with, simultaneously, both dogs came in with a bird in their mouth. That was speckless, but when I saw that happen, I just absolutely that's a that's a that's a good retelling of it and i will say that i was i was kind of curious because you know i looked at the video a little bit and if those birds were not quite in the air at the same time it was an instantaneous report pair because because right when you shot that first one you know it's you can't tell exactly by looking at the camera but that other one was in the air pretty darn quickly if he wasn't if he wasn't already in the air but i think like you said the dogs coming in at the end, and I I'll encourage people mm-hmm. to check this out. That was that was pretty cool. Back- well, that's one of the reasons why you know another reason why I've, I've been doing these. I was asking myself why well why is it that I put out these YouTube videos and you know, a lot of it is to to me is 
I mean, I like to show off my dogs when they do good work and whatnot, but also to demonstrate what you can accomplish with with a dog, you know, in training. I think there's a lot of people that would like to have a dog that, to be steady and, and that, but then struggle with trying to figure out how to how to do that without putting so much pressure on that you lose some of the style and whatnot out of them. But uh, I really enjoy, you know, helping people achieve, you know, some of the same enjoyment that I have had with um, with training and you know, training dogs to a to a level that um, you, know, you just don't see every day. So that was just uh, that's I think part of the reason why I put out these videos is to try to demonstrate, you know, when uh, things really come together with the, the training and whatnot. And I, I will commend you for that, and I, I think it is. I think your videos are a great example of, of a few things, and I, I kind of jotted a few things down here, but that that's a good one. I don't know that I would have pulled that one out, but now that you say it, just the fact that you've got a lot of great dog work on these videos, and you know I've watched enough of them where I can say, yeah, that you don't put any pressure on your dogs, really. it's uh, You're out there enjoying yourself, and you say – you're talking to them a little bit, but I think you do. It's it's one of those things where people, you can talk about it at the end of the day around the trucks or the water cooler, wherever you're having these conversations about dogs, but you can actually see it on display in your videos. And I think that is, if, if people are wondering, what does a good pointing grouse dog look like? What do they generally do? And what is, now these videos aren't, aren't taking into consideration all the work and time and effort that went into getting the dogs to that point. But but to see that finished product, I think that could definitely inspire people, and I think that's your, your videos do a great job of that. Yeah, it, um, you know, coming from uh, a field trial background, you know, that's what you're looking for in a field trial is a dog that stands tall and confident, and with um, all the style that you that you like to see, and uh, yeah, to, to be able to demonstrate, you know, here's what here's what you can accomplish with them. You know, there's so many things that um, I think go unrealized with um, these animals that um, what they're capable of doing. You know, short hair being a first year breed, there's so many things that they can do. Whether mine pulled dog sled and, and you know both waterfowl hunt and you know hunt. Yeah, to to demonstrate some of that, you know, and uh, just the enjoyment that I've gotten out of it. And I think it's part of the reason why. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so you kind of, you answered where we, where we dove off on that. My really original question was, you know, what is that enjoyment and what are the things that you get out of recording those videos? And it's, it's clear in, in our conversation that you've got, uh, you've got no signs of, of slowing down. On you know, the horseback hunts is, you know, uh, it's something that um, a, lot of, a lot of guys never get the opportunity to. And, uh, it's something fairly special that um, it's, it's something I really am enjoy doing you know, getting out in some beautiful country and, and if I can share that with other people and, and uh, show them here's something that uh, you may want to put on your bucket list someday to be able to try to do. Let's talk about that for a little bit, John, because selfishly, those are a few of the videos that I've keyed in on this year because this year in September, I'm going to make my first trip west and I will be going to Montana middle of September. So those videos have, needless to say, got me very, very excited. Now you've got you got a different spin on it with the horseback hunts. Now I think you mentioned earlier that you grew up with horses. Was that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Had a, had at least one horse um, all my life. It's all been comfortable around him. Uh, of course, when I started field traveling, you know, everything a part of that too. Yeah, it's just it's pretty special to be able to run dogs off horseback. It, it adds in dimension to it that um, uh, you know most guys realize uh, you can see so much better, and you can really it allows the dogs when you get in that sort of country like Montana or North Dakota, Nebraska, uh, some areas that it just allows the dog to stretch out there. And, cover so much more ground without having to turn back and come back and, and catch you up with or wait for you to catch up. You look back at the end of the day on how much ground you cover and it's like, you know, you've been able to even come close to that on foot. You know, we can, we can hunt 
and some areas that may have mediocre, you know, bird numbers. With the amount of ground that you cover, you know, you, you have that much more contact with birds and makes all the difference. It certainly looks to me like a really special kind of hunt. And like I said, I've never been out there. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and we won't be on horseback, but even through the GoPro, which sometimes isn't the best at, at really showing that depth perspective, it's, it's, it's very evident in when you get up on that horse and the camera's up there, I mean, and you see the dogs running. I mean, I can't imagine it's gotta be just breathtaking to actually be there and look out across that horizon and see your dogs coursing through that cover. I mean, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's pretty comfortable. Yeah, we generally hunt in, in pairs, and, and uh, you know, a dog goes on point up there, and it's pretty leisurely. We'll ride up, and generally, you know, one guy gets off, and, and he goes up and, and shoots, and the other guy brings his horse, brings his horse up for him. And, you know, it's, it's pretty comfortable. How did that trip come about, John? It's something that, uh, for a number of years, I, it's something I always wanted to do. But um, just hadn't made the jump. But um, when picked up a trailer and gotten set up so that I could go on the road, and, you know, it's a 12 hour, 13 hour drive to where we're hunting in Montana. We started in, in North Dakota, some, some real nice areas there, but then uh, they kind of got disturbed in the areas that we were hunting in with the oil boom out there. We had made. Uh, a trip down to Nebraska and headed to the sand hills down there also. But, um, yeah, um, yeah, you know, I don't know, I imagine it's close to 10 years now that we've been doing it every year. And each year, it's now we try to find some new areas and, and we've kind of gotten a you know, pretty good uh, set of areas. Montana, by far, has been the, the best as far as the, the amount of real estate out there uh, with the rock management program available for that, which just is ideal, you know, for doing the horseback hunt. Some of those block management areas are, you know, tens of thousands of acres in a block. You can ride, you know, four miles in one direction and then those four miles in another direction. It's just, uh, it's a really pretty country out there. Are you hunting all public access lands out there? Do you have a place to stay? Are you yeah. camping? Yeah, it's private land, but open to public comment. Sure, okay. You know, similar to our walk-in areas, whatever it's called, you know, block management. You do have to sign in. Um, there's a couple of different types of block management. Some you have to call ahead and reserve. Uh, other ones that you just uh, sign in at the box. The landowner gets paid uh, in accord to how many people are using that property. So that's very welcoming. In order to, you know, we've gotten, we get a hold of the landowner and get permission to be able to stay open nights. We can't put on site, which is another pretty special thing. Yeah. To, uh, to be out there and, and camp and get up in the morning and you can, you know, do the roosters back and, you know, you know, you're right there with them. The highlights are high at night. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty special. Yeah, that only makes me more excited to take a trip out there. And uh, now you go out there. You said September first, so you go right away when the season opens, right? Yeah, that's what we've been doing. It can be pretty warm. Um, there's been on most days, I guess I would say that um, you know we we sit out the midday hours and, and just kind of lay on, maybe get a couple hours in the evening you know, to, uh, to to run them again, but. Um, the cool of the mornings uh, is the best you know, time to put the dogs down. And we generally um, have you know at least two, three, four dogs per guy, so we can rotate through them, uh, keeping the, you know the dogs fresh. Absolutely. Now I know you run GPS collars on your dog. Do you keep pretty good tabs on what kind of mileage they're doing out there? Yeah. Um, you know they'll average. Probably ten miles per hour. We may, you know, we may do depending on the area that we're on. We may have them down for three hours at a crack. They'll cover quite a bit of ground. The other back, if they put down twenty miles, they're they're generally getting tired. To keep them in good condition, that's one of the reasons why I condition year round. You know, keeping them in shape. 
Well, on that conditioning note, what are some of your favorite ways to keep the dogs in good shape year-round, and what are you doing right now? Right now, uh, I have not run uh, or pulled me on a bike. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have a series of trails through a state forest up here outside of Zimmerman that um, it's ideal for uh, I've had as many as five dogs, generally I have three dogs pulling me on a fat tire bike. Tends to soften up the bumps a lot better. I used to use just a regular mountain bike, and um, it can get kind of hairy at times. So um, with uh, with the narrow tires, uh, it's cost me one soldier shoulder surgery because of it. But um, (laughs) yeah, it's uh, as long as you got good brakes, um, I'll put them down for seven, eight, and ten miles if the weather's cool. They love to pull. It's a lot of fun. And it works really well. But, uh, and then when it gets good and hot, uh, we'll swim, you know, take them, take them all out in the boat. We got a small lake nearby that uh, we get out in the middle. So we get everybody in the pool and uh, they'll swim. I've had them swim straight for an hour at a time. And uh, they enjoy it. They kind of learn to, to handle out in front of a boat the same way they do as if you're running in, in a field. <laughs> awesome. But, uh, when they get out after you know, about 45 minutes straight swimming, you can tell they're tired. Yeah, yeah. The swimming is that swimming is really good. I've I've even I've seen that in my setter. He's, we've spent enough time down at the cabin, and he'll uh, he'll spend time in the water. He enjoys it. But that's uh, that's a good exercise for them. Now on the bike, I'll ask you one more question on the bike because I'm curious about this. I just I haven't done it with my dog, but I was kind of hoping to. And I, I was looking at some attachments where they've got the dog out off the side. Uh, but I know I saw it in one of your videos where you have the dogs out in front, and I was going to ask you about that anyways. Do you have any special connection for the rope on the bike, or is it just tied right up near the yeah. stem? Yeah, you definitely want that connection out in front of the, the front tire. Well, I know there's other ones that have a side on them. I haven't, I haven't used something like that. Yeah. I actually, you know, made something up myself uh, using an old pay rate time, a, a dump rate time, which has kind of got an arc to it the, the same way as the front tire. Weld a ring onto that. It gives a, it's almost a uh, spring shock absorption uh, from side to side. Sure. So you get that connection in front of that wheel. The last thing you want is for those, a lead to get some slack in it and get into that front wheel at the back. Yeah. So, and then I use, um, instead of just a straight uh, rope or cord, and I use stretch cord, which is about four foot long, the real stretch, as far as eight foot, I'll stretch out to eight foot. Um, and that's what makes the connection between that iron and the, uh, their homes. So it gives the dog some shock absorption. When they pull, it's just a nice, even, uh, there's always tension on it. The dogs tend to pull better when, when they can feel something behind them that they're actually broken from. Oh, yeah. Aged. They, they will, they'll pull harder and faster. And they can actually feel something. They're just free running. They tend to just kind of settle into, into an easy pace. But if they, can, if they can feel something behind them, they're working and engaged. Um, they just tend to really uh, bear down and pull that much harder. Gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's good insight. I'll have to uh, to look into a couple of those things. Well, let's uh, transition just a bit here. And we have we've covered a few of the things that I have learned about you, John, from watching your YouTube videos. One of them that we've kind of talked about throughout is the fact that you've got a really nice string of uh, short hairs that you that you kick around in the woods in the field with, and they really are good dogs. Tell us a little bit about your dogs. We we talked about you know the first one that you got, but tell us a little bit about your dogs today. And maybe uh, maybe lines, maybe where you where you get them, and and if people are interested in the kind of dogs that you have, you know what to look for, that kind of thing. Um, well, the first dog that I had was out of the Spencer Grace line. You know, I had I hadn't had uh, I had gone through you know the through the seventies, eighties, into the nineties with short hairs, and there was a period there when I 
dogs to the level where you like them which i would say is is really steady to wing shot and fall i mean in in a lot of your videos it's evident the dogs the dogs do release on command even after you've downed a bird what does your training program and all that's it you know we could probably talk at length about it but what what does it generally look like and what is the involvement of wild birds and then and then kind of real setup training scenarios through the off season. Well, yeah, wild birds are ideal when you can when you when you got them. Um, it's pretty rare for somebody to have, you know, wild birds and be able to train a dog on wild birds, but we we simulate you know, as best we can uh, with pen raised birds or you know, with pigeons especially the wild bird scenario using remote launchers is as good an imitation that you can with uh, as far as wild birds, meaning you can flush those birds whenever you want to. Yep. That's how training on wild birds, wild birds won't tolerate a dog getting that close to them. And um, I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. All they've got available maybe is to go you know, pick up some quail or, or some chopper and allowing uh, uh, young dogs to, to be able to get in too close to them because birds can flush on their own until the dog's right on top of them. So you know, whether it be wild birds or a bird or a pigeon coming out of the rancher when you when that dog first scents you know, gets that good scent to be able to launch that bird immediately, whether they're pointing or not, you know, it teaches the dog that hey, when they when they hit that good scent, they either stop or the bird's gonna go. Once the bird goes the game's over as far as the dog is concerned. The dog will just as soon as keep that bird on the ground as long as possible. So I think that's a big key into training dogs to, to stand well off of their birds and maybe something that's a, it's a challenge for for the guys that don't have the resources of you know, half a dozen bird launchers and, and uh, a group of homing pigeons. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we do use wild birds like this time of year now that you know, the nesting ban is off. Um, I've been you know, spending some time in the woods trying to you know, uh, find some grouse or you know, woodcock and, uh, and just getting, getting them prepared that way. And, and, uh, it takes experience to uh, produce a dog that, that knows how to handle, you know, especially the rough, rough grouse. It takes a number of uh, bird contacts 
Yeah, those are those are great points, and I think your comment about you know the resources and remote bird launchers. I wish they were cheaper, but they're not, and that is I think that is a limiting factor for a lot of people, and even myself. I've got one dog, and he was my first one, and I fortunately have really good access to wild birds. So when I can get out during those times of the year, I do often, and I think that's really helped my dog. But for the most part, I haven't invested entirely in all that equipment, and I've kind of uh, relied on my contacts and my circle of friends to do some of the real setup training that you referred to. And I kind of wish I had a had a little bit better group around here, and maybe I just haven't looked hard enough to really get out and do sort of a regular weekly training thing with the dogs during the summer. I think that would be fun. Now, you got you have a group like that where you're at, don't you? Yeah, I belong to the Treasure Club of Minnesota. Uh, you know, um, we try to, to um, schedule some training days, but then, and then, uh, you know, I've got a number of people that um, will join me. I, they've, um, there's got training grounds up uh, north of Black uh, that they, all the dog clubs have, have leased and had it's on a piece of state area called Fairbrook's Law Management Area. We were able to train the year now. It's set up and groomed for the training and holding uh, events up there, whether it be hunt tests or field trials. You know, having the area to be able to train uh, at any given time is, makes a big difference, too. Yeah, you know, it's one thing I really enjoy is uh, being able to, to help other other people with the training that may not have access to, to birds and whatnot. And yeah, but if, uh, if a person, there's, there's other clubs, you know, that uses those grounds quite a bit. Uh, and uh, I know there's, they've got a number of people up there and they have uh, regular training days up there also. But uh, I would just encourage anybody, you know, to try to get into a, a group like that that um, you'll learn so much uh, from listening and talking to other people that may have had a bit more experience and been through it. Just having the ability to train alongside and and watch other people work their dogs, you can learn so much. Yeah, I think you hit on a great point there, and and that is seeing other dogs for sure because a lot of people, you know, we only – few of us have one, two dogs, maybe three, and and the dogs, I think I wanted to ask you is how much variability you've seen and just given given that you've trained a number of dogs over the years and you've got five right now, how much how much variability do you see from dog to dog? You know, you've you've got all the short hairs, but as far as learning curves and how quickly they pick up one concept versus another, I mean, what is, what does that look like amongst this a string of five dogs? Yeah, from you know, between dogs, each one of them has a little bit different personality. Of course, and each one of them is at a, at a different level of experience and, and maturity. Um, some dogs tend to mature faster than others. Um, some breeds tend to mature uh, faster or slower than others. Uh, uh, yeah, it, um, you kind of get a, you can't, everybody seems to acquire their own method of training. You know, there's, there's several different methods out there. Uh, all of them good. Uh, they you know, they seem to take bits and pieces from each one to see what works for you and, and how you like to, what you're trying to accomplish and, and just how you like to do it. But, uh, um, and I've kind of acquired, you know, I've taken bits and pieces uh, on how to do it. And, and uh, a lot of what, got a lot of respect for uh, the Smith method, you know, Rick Ronnie, yep. uh, Smith. I guess what I would call the basis of, you know, how I train using the, the flank, the collar on the flank for when it does come time to, to break them. Uh, uh, I think that's it's a method that's worked out well for me. Everybody seems to develop their own. I don't think there's any one that's, uh, of course, is the best. And, but uh, you find what works. And, and, uh, yeah, and sometimes, it, you know, a certain dog needs something different. Fortunately, one problem that we, you know, a guy like me that's that's fairly new to the game, that's just getting started in bird dogs, we have a lot more information, I think, today than, than maybe you had when, when you were starting out. So it is a little bit easier to find good contacts, good resources. Now, the flip side of that is there's also 
you can get on Facebook and you can get on uh, internet forums and there's a lot of people that are happy to share their opinion with you that may or may not always be good advice. So you have to, you got to take everything with a grain of salt. But if you are, if you go and read a, read a book by Rick and Ronnie Smith, I mean, you can be pretty well sure that anything you read in there is, is going to be pretty well vetted and and it's going to be quality information. So on, uh, on retrieving one more question on, on the dogs before we, slide off that a little bit on retrieving it appears on camera that your dogs are very good retrievers now they are german short hairs they're versatile hunting dogs they've got a lot of that in them i would imagine but what do you find is it all natural do you have a method for force breaking or trained retrieve as people like to call it these days yeah uh with most everyone of mine i i do uh the force train or train retrieve with and it just tends to guarantee it um yeah, it's a it's a you know it's a fairly lengthy process. Um, it takes time um, and patience, but um, once you get to the other end with them, you've got a retriever that um, is pretty much fail safe with if you take them all the way through. Uh, most of them have a fairly natural retrieve already, but getting them to to hold their birds, you know, all the way in. When it gets to a challenging situation where you know, you've uh, got a bird you know, out there, uh, whether it be out in the water or you know, to be able to send them, they you know what their job is. And uh, it, you know, like I say, it just makes for a uh, guarantee that um, they're not gonna they're not gonna quit. Um, but I, you know, I use you know same type of methods that uh, you'll see in. Uh, uh, Smith training, you know, whether it be a uh, point of contact, uh, you know, with the, an ear pinch or, or even an e-collar or a, a toe hitch I've, I've used in all. It's understanding, you know, just how it works and it takes, you know, the first time you do it, uh, you know, it should be expected that that's going to take longer and uh, you may have some frustrations. But um, I'd say once you've accomplished it, Excellent. Good deal. Well, John, let's, uh, I got a few more questions here for you before we wrap up. One other thing that I have learned from watching your YouTube videos is you've got a pretty darn good idea of what good, at least in Minnesota or this area, you got a pretty darn good idea of what good rough grouse and woodcock habitat looks like. Yeah. After doing it enough times, it, it just comes natural when a certain cover, you just know it just screams grouse. Yeah. It just it just tells you they're here. Now some of the t- some of the tools for finding good grouse cover yep. um have really really improved um before on X and whatnot and you know I was uh, constantly looking at uh, satellite images and and then now with the tools to be able to find you know, aspen cuts and um, the, the ages of them and, and seeing where, you know, I've been uh, using uh, Northwind Enterprises uh, hunt maps, the scout and hunt maps, uh, and that is, they turn me on and, and, and find a lot of nice grass covers out there also. Where you can find, you know, where that, where the edge between the, Maybe the tag alders and eight to ten year old Aspen cut. It's just it's money, right? When you find that, like, uh, um, that's all you gotta do is hunt that edge. You'll find it. Of course, you, know, you just recognize it when you see it. Right, and that's that is something that is picked up over time spent in the woods, where you do find yourself in a piece of cover and you look around and you say, this is grousey and you just know it and you can, you can sometimes yeah. feel it. And I feel like, I feel like somebody that's spent a fair enough, fair amount of time in the woods, you have that connection. But for somebody just starting out, you mentioned it, you mentioned a tool like Northwind maps. I've been talking to Anne recently and, and I've used her product for the last two, three years. And, and I, I feel like they're incredible. I mean, they're for yeah. somebody, for somebody that is just starting out, if you don't know where to even scratch the surface and find grouse cover, I mean, call call up Anne and start yeah. start asking her because not, not, number one, she's going to educate you. And number two, she has products that can make it really easy. Now, I I intend to have her on a, on an upcoming podcast, so so listeners can stay tuned 
to that. But one other thing I wanted to say on the grouse cover that is specifically, I feel like is highlighted over and over again in your videos. And, and, and it has to do with, with those edges and also with the non-aspen related cover, because we talk about grouse habitat and so often we talk about aspen. And I think if you're hunting grouse in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, aspen is not far away, but it doesn't mean that you have to be dead center smack dab in the middle of an aspen cut and, and Oftentimes, that's not the best place to be, and I think right. if if people have some time and they wanna they wanna kill a little time and and get excited for the season to check out some of your videos. Like I said, I will post the link. You spend a lot of time in those areas where you're not right in the middle of a cut. It may be nearby, but there's a lot of it might look more open, I think, than people might suspect. But there's there's a lot of deadfall and. It just looks grousey to me and obviously to you. And I think those are really the areas that you want to, you want to focus on. If say you're, you're having trouble and you're just focusing on the aspen cuts. Right. Yeah. No, especially it seems when you get into the latter part of October, I tend to find more birds uh, on the high ground. Whereas in the early season, I tend to find birds, you know, you hunt the, edges of the wet areas and yeah. I, that's where it, it seems like i tend to find birds in the tag orders and such but then um, they're on the edge something happens in the land to probably elaborate much better yeah something yeah. happens in that period um you know later october early november where maybe it's the fall dispersal or uh, they tend to be in a little bit more open areas you know you get much better shooting yeah and, and i think well, I was gonna I was gonna say that if uh, if people do watch the video of you shooting the double on rough grouse, that's a really good example because it's it's much more open. It's much more open than you might think. There is there are deadfall. There's deadfall on the ground, and there and there there is stuff on the ground. There's places for the birds to hide, but it's a little bit more open, and you can see the birds in the air. And yeah, I mean that's that's where I've had probably some of my most memorable point shots flushes in in the last handful of years is covers areas like that yeah it seems like so often when i'm walking up on dog on point if there's a if there's a deadfall nearby or out front that's where i'm going yeah because that's where the bird will most likely be yes somewhere near that deadfall but um it seems like that's more often the case yeah Um, absolutely well the last thing that will that i'll touch on before we uh let you go john is the the other thing i've learned from watching your videos is you do shoot barrels that are that are stacked on top of each other for the most part i don't i don't know if i've ever seen a side by side but what uh you know we we talk about side by sides on on this but and we we, t- we really talk a lot about double guns because i feel like that's kind of yeah that's what that's what a lot of people shoot but but talk a little bit about the guns and what do you like to carry out there uh, i carry a browning satori 20 gauge, and uh, it's a gun that I've picked up uh, eight years ago. Um, before that, the gun was, was always just a tool for me, and I, I shot a lot of birds, but then it went into an eight and I graduated to the, the over and under and uh, crack open, carried on your shoulder, cracked open the whole time, wait till the dog goes on point, and it just, uh, it's just such a pleasure to. To, to carry a gun that way with it being that light. No, I really enjoy it. I don't consider myself a gun snob by any means. It's still just a, it's a tool, but um, this one happens to be, a, you know, a pretty tool. And it, it seems that the shoot where I point it, um, uh, I really enjoy it. I, haven't, I, I don't have a whole arsenal of uh, other guns. I tend to just find one that works and stick with it. I'll have my days when I, you know, I can't seem to hit anything and the harder I try, <laughs> the worse it gets. But, um, yeah, it tends to, I say, when, when everything is uh, just coming natural, it's uh, been fun to shoot. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Do you, uh, do you practice shooting much, or you pretty much just leave it to hunting season and just go all natural? Yeah, pretty much leave it to hunting season, but I do a fair amount of shooting, uh, just in dog training. Okay, um, yeah, sure. That's, you know, that's another thing, you know, to get a dog to, uh, to be steady to wing, shot, fall. Um, you, you have to train in that situation. So I do a fair amount of, you know, shooting pigeons a 
One, one more, all right. One more question, kind of a party question for you here, John. You mentioned earlier that you had kids, so I would imagine uh, that you maybe raised an upland hunter or two. What advice would you have for somebody listening that is maybe they're just getting into upland hunting and they want to learn more about dogs and birds and where to hunt? Any uh, fine pieces of wisdom for a for a new hunter, John? Uh, there's a lot of information out there, like you say, you know, watching YouTube videos or or using some of the tools that are out there for finding places to hunt. Yeah. You know, if if uh, if you can get in contact with um, uh, an experienced hunter, I just would encourage that. It's probably a little challenge for, for some people sure. um, to step out of their comfort zone and, and, and show up at a, you know, a, a dog event to rub shoulders with a few people. But most of them, those clubs are all, always welcome to, to newcomers. I'm just encouraging to you know, find the local breed club and, and um, get in contact with them. You know, game fair is just around the corner here. And, yeah, that's right. And be a tent out there with all the, the other dog clubs. I didn't you know, encourage them to you know, stop in there and say hi and you know, say, you know, what do you guys do? Yeah, it makes all the difference uh, to try to, to find somebody and, and get a connection for that first time. Which I, um, uh, I like uh, some of the programs, the presence or whatever. The Rough Grouse Society has uh, mentoring programs for younger kids or, or even uh, first-time adults. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I'd like to see that take off. It's not something that I've participated in, but, but uh, it's been tempting to. Yeah, absolutely. That's that is that is great advice, John, and uh, I uh, I appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us on the Project Up and podcast and and talk a little bit little birds, guns, dogs. I know it wasn't it wasn't didn't take too much convincing to get you to agree to that, but but I really do thank you, and uh, I I wish you the best of luck in your your trip out west and and your grouse season. And I'm not too far away from you, so we'll have to keep in touch, and yeah, we'll, maybe we'll sneak out in the yeah. woods someday. That would be great. Um, no, I really appreciate it, Nick, and thanks for having me on. And good luck this season. Uh, if you ever, uh, you know, got a free weekend or Saturday or something, uh, don't hesitate. We ought to get together sometime. I will not, John. I appreciate that, and I'll be sure to follow up with you when uh, when I get back from Montana and, and uh, let you know how the trip goes. Yeah, definitely. All right, buddy. Thanks All a lot. Right. I appreciate it. You have a great night. Thanks, Nick. You too. See ya. Yeah. been listening to the project upland podcast that does it for this episode as your host i would like to personally thank you for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that we are brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp and onyx maps head over to projectupland.com we've got it all for you there articles videos more great stuff from project upland and northwoods collective check it out at projectupland.com and don't forget You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast gear giveaway. All you have to do is subscribe to this podcast, hit that little subscribe button, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner. Also, we would love to hear from you. Please use the contact form at projectupland.com or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. We could talk about bird dogs. We could talk about shotguns. We could talk about hunting trips you have planned. We can talk about future podcast guest suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own 
Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.